I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hello, John. How are you today? I'm not doing too poorly, John. Uh, it's been an interesting period of time here in uh, my little world. Uh, after some traveling, I'm safely back home in Texas. Spent uh, a couple of weeks, as I mentioned a while ago, out in California helping my brother and his family with their new arrival. Got to walk along the ocean, saw some seals, saw some birds, saw some other type of birds. California is pretty much locked down as it should be right now, so that was about my only outside instance, and that was okay. Seals, birds in the ocean sounds pretty nice to me. It's been... It's been a while since I've seen the ocean. I had no complaints at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad you made it back home safely. So what show are we going to be talking about today, John? So this week we are talking about The Drowsy Chaperone, which premiered in 2006 on Broadway, but dates all the way back to 1997, where it started its journey in Canada. The music and lyrics were written by Lisa Lambert and Greg Morrison. The book by Bob Martin and Don McKellar. The show opened on Broadway in May of 2006 at the Marquee Theater and closed in December of 2007, having played 674 performances. The Drowsy Chaperone was directed and choreographed by Casey Nicola, with music direction by Phil Reno. The cast included Bob Martin as the man in the chair, Sutton Foster as Janet Vandegraaff, Troy Britton Johnson as Robert Martin, Eddie Corbick as George, Jennifer Smith as Kitty, Lenny Wolp as Feltzig, Danny Burstein as Adolfo, Beth Levell as the Drowsy Chaperone, Keisha Lewis Evans as Trix, and Georgia Engel as Miss Tottendale. The Drowsy Chaperone was nominated for 13 Tony Awards and won five, including Best Book of a Musical and Best Original Score. The show opens in complete darkness with the man in chair saying, I hate the theater. As he begins to tell the audience a little about himself and how he's feeling, which today is blue, the lights come up and we find ourselves in the man in chair's apartment. In order to try and cheer himself up, he decides to listen to one of his favorite records. Yes, records. The Drowsy Chaperone, a fictional musical from 1928. As he puts on the record and the overture begins, the man in chair talks all about the glory days of musical theater. Slowly, the musical begins to come to life in his apartment as the man in chair remains on the audience's side of the fourth wall, commenting about the backgrounds of the actors in the show, as well as providing his own running commentary on the action. The opening number of The Drowsy Chaperone introduces us to all of the characters as they each enter and sing about who they are and why they are there. Everyone has gathered at the home of Mrs. Tottendale for the wedding of oil tycoon Robert Martin and Broadway star Janet Vandegraaff. In addition to the hostess, bride, and groom, we meet the best man, George, a Broadway producer, Feltzig, who is hoping to lure Janet back to the stage, a flapper named Kitty who wants to take Janet's place on the stage, 
two gangsters disguised as pastry chefs who are after Feltzig, the king of romance Adolfo, and Janet's chaperone, who is in a state of almost constant intoxication, as well as Trix, an aviatrix. As the show progresses, each song is a spoof of the stereotypical tropes and musical styles of the 1920s, with the man and chair providing constant context for the audience. Robert performs a tap number about having cold feet. Janet sings a song about leaving the stage, saying that she doesn't want to show off anymore, as she performs various and increasingly more impressive feats. The drowsy chaperone sings a rousing anthem to alcoholism in response to Janet's fears that Robert really doesn't love her. Meanwhile, Feltzig has sent Adolfo to try and seduce Janet so that the wedding will fall apart and she can return to Feltzig's follies. Instead of seducing Janet, Adolfo instead seduces the more than willing chaperone. In the garden, Janet encounters Robert, blindfolded so that he won't see Janet, and on roller skates because, why not, and pretends to be a French girl named Mimi. Mimi woos the blindfolded Robert into giving her a kiss. Janet, who again is also Mimi, is horrified by Robert's willingness to kiss a stranger, runs away. As the gangsters pressure Feltzig into coming up with a solution so their boss can recoup his investment, Feltzig realizes that their intimidation techniques create quite the stage act. They become the perfect backup dancers for Kitty. Everyone comes together for the wedding, but Janet announces that the wedding is off because Robert has kissed a beautiful French girl named Mimi, who, by the way, is also Janet. The man in chair informs the audience that this is the end of the first act of the Drowsy Chaperone. But there is no intermission in the larger show. Instead, the man in chair starts the second act of Drowsy Chaperone, telling the audience that they can listen to the entr'acte as he goes to the bathroom. What we hear instead of the opening of Act 2 of the Drowsy Chaperone is a song called Message from a Nightingale, from the musical The Enchanted Nightingale. It is a blatant spoof of the king and I. The man in chair comes running back to correct his mistake and begins Act 2 of The Drowsy Chaperone. At the beginning of Act 2 of The Drowsy Chaperone, we find Janet now lamenting her lost love. Elsewhere, Mrs. Tottendale tells her underling, the character's name in the show, that she loves him and they decide to get married. The chaperone and Adolfo also announce that they are going to get married. Robert confronts Janet, telling her that he still loves her. The man in chair tells the audience that one of his favorite parts is coming up. The chaperone gives the advice, while you can, to Janet. The middle of the word is covered up by someone dropping a cane, so we don't know what she actually said. Did she say live or leave? The man in the chair tells us more about his personal life and his belief that you should never leave, only live. Back in the drowsy chaperone, Janet forgives Robert, admitting that she was actually Mimi, and they decide to get married. Feltzig appeases the gangsters by announcing that he has decided to make Kitty his new star with her mind-reading talent, which she demonstrates by announcing that Feltzig is going to ask her to marry him. With the four couples set to get married, 
Best man George realizes that he has forgotten to get a minister to perform the ceremonies. Just then, the aviatrix Trix lands her plane in the garden announcing that she is about to depart for Rio. Because a pilot is a kind of captain, and captains can perform weddings, it is decided that everyone will climb aboard Trix's plane and she will marry the couples, and then they will all go honeymoon in Rio. As the show is playing its final chord, the power goes out in the man in chair's apartment. The superintendent arrives to check the breakers, and as power is restored, the record player winds back up to play the final chord. As the drowsy chaperone ends, the man in chair is once again alone, still blue, and now frustrated by the ending of the show being ruined. He expresses his love for this show that he's never actually seen, and begins to sing the chaperone's anthem, as we stumble along, to himself. Slowly, the cast members begin to appear and join him in the song, acknowledging his existence for the first time in the show and bringing the musical to a close. This is a fun show. It is a fun show, and it's one of those shows that I have been peripherally around but haven't gotten to be a part of, and I would genuinely love to be a part of. You know, the man in chair is one of those roles that I, as a conductor, not so much a stage performer would generally love to take a crack at because that's kind of who I am. I mean, as you might have guessed from someone who decided to make a podcast with one of his friends about musicals, when I listen to musicals, this kind of internal monologue that he's doing is, is what goes on in my head. And it's deceptively difficult role to do. You think, well, he sits in the chair the whole time and he he makes this comments and, and, and commentary on the show. It is a deceptively difficult position to be in. And like it or not, even with a charismatic Janet and Robert, the man in the chair carries the show. He sets the tone from the very beginning. He's one of the more emotional high points that we have towards the end of the show when he starts finally bearing his soul and talking about it's never a good idea to leave. It's always a good idea to love because sometimes love goes away and you never want it to go away. And then we have this catharsis at the very end when he's lamenting how Blackout ruined his, for lack of a better term, performance of the show. But it's not enough to dampen or kill off his idealism about what the show means to him. Absolutely. I mean, the, the man in chair is going to make or break this show. If, if, if that's not a solid performer and performance, it's just not all going to come together because it is ultimately about him and, and his experiences through listening to this musical. I think, you know, we even get that from the beginning, starting with just him, but then the fact that, his apartment is what transforms into the set of the drowsy chaperone, the show that's playing. This is one of those great theater moments where you get to do wonderful stage tricks, like refrigerators turning into doors and all kinds of various things, people coming through windows that are just, to me is uh, really fun and enjoyable to see. At one point in the show, they use a Murphy bed as an entrance and an exit to a scene. Think about that for a second. A Murphy bed becomes an entrance and an exit to a scene. That doesn't make sense on paper, yet this show manages to pull it off in a charmingly humorous way. They even go a step further 
straight up land a plane on stage, a biplane on stage, not just any plane, but this big, impressive plane that tricks flies. And then they just strap everybody to the wings and she gets back in her plane. And that second to last song in the show is just them kind of hanging on for dear life as they fly down to Rio while Trix is marrying them, hanging from the wings of this airplane. But it's all still within the context of the man in chairs apartment. Right. And actually that kind of is one of those great show within a show moments as that moment is happening. That's when the power goes out and the super comes in to, to check on everything and restore the power and, the musical comes back on and he's like, Oh, you like musicals, man. Have you seen Miss Saigon? They land a helicopter on the stage and you get that great moment where there is this biplane in his apartment with everyone on the wings. And he just kind of the man in chair slowly turns, looks back to this show from long ago, way older than Miss Saigon and the greatness of this biplane on stage. And then looks back at the superintendent in disgust and tells him to get out. And it's just, it's one of my favorite parts of the show. This show comes off in so many ways as a love letter to Broadway, but is not afraid to kind of go over the top for the joke. Almost like they're making fun of themselves a little bit. It It's funny because in past episodes, we've kind of pointed out where a show may get a little bit more tropey or they try to keep it a little bit more on an original path. I feel like The Drowsy Chaperone is an incredibly tropey show, but unlike some of the other shows we've discussed, it's actually not only done on purpose, but it's done in this way that says, okay, yeah, we know what came before. We know you enjoy it. And so we're going to do it and we're going to make you laugh while we do it. Yeah, I think it's that ownership and that taking it to the nth degree that makes it as successful as it is. It is unashamed of what it is. For example, we've got what is probably your favorite trope in the entire world, singing gangsters. I am all about the singing gangsters. And not only are they singing gangsters, but they're masquerading as pastry chefs. So unlike in Kiss Me Kate, where we get a song full of these just glorious Shakespearean puns in The Drowsy Chaperone, we get this song filled with glorious baking and pastry puns. It's just fantastic. It, it really is, and it makes me smile, and I will never be opposed to singing gangsters in any context ever. One of the moments that really stands out for me early in the show is Janet Vandegraaff's big number, Show Off, which is basically a song that she starts in front of a bunch of reporters who are quizzing her on why she's leaving Feltig's Follies and why she's leaving the stage. And she's, you know, she says, I'm in love with Robert and he's the only thing I need for the rest of my life. And... I don't need this fame anymore. I don't need this fortune anymore. I don't need this attention anymore. As the song grows and grows and she starts twirling batons and she starts doing hula hoops. And then it ends with this big dramatic, I don't want to change keys no more on one of the most glorious stereotypical Broadway golden age key changes imaginable. It is 
almost utterly predictable and just incredibly satisfying when you get that moment because the escalation of things as you see it being set up is just it's ridiculous it's over the top it's hilarious and it's just so 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 satisfying and we even get that cherry on top that magnificent spectacular creature that is the encore and it's funny because there's a line right before the encore starts where one of the ensemble members just hangs a beautiful lampshade on it and they're commenting and she in and the the chorus member says something to the effect of what we don't get an encore i think it's actually kitty says yeah i'm surprised she didn't do an encore that's right no you're absolutely right and all of a sudden orchestra starts back up and she's there one last time for that kick line glorious encore that just brings the house down with the text i don't want to encore no more of course so john unlike me you've actually gotten to do this show i have twice actually i don't want to cause any triggers for you but as long as we're talking about these show within a show elements are you comfortable talking about the record skip moment ah oh boy so at the end of act one of the inner drowsy chaperone this this is where it always gets fun because the drowsy chaperone is a show within a show the smaller show is the drowsy chaperone the larger show is the drowsy chaperone. And so it always gets fun. So you say, who's on first? And it's exactly right. So we're towards the end of the first act of the smaller inner drowsy chaperone. When we're actually, it's actually the gangster number, if I'm not mistaken. It's that gangster number that bleeds the, into the, the Toledo, kind of the Toledo finale. surprise, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's a moment. And, and again, this is just beautiful work on, on the, the authors of this show. If anyone has ever owned a record player and you have a beloved record or an older record or something, you know unless you keep it in immaculate shape and you baby it and you dust it and you keep it in its, its sleeve and on the shelf at, a protect, at the exact right angle, occasionally you're going to scratch that record. And if you scratch that record, you get the skips. And there's this one gag that starts as a throwaway, but becomes this huge moment in the song where they the, the record starts skipping. And the cast is just singing this bar over and over. Now, it's it's like most accessible musicals. That moment's in four. So there's four beats to the measure. But to make the record skip work, you can't keep it in four. And it results in a 7-8 bar that I am convinced is sent by the devil of theater himself. Some shows would have tracked this so that the orchestra didn't have to play. It's literally the exact same thing as the previous bar, the previous 4-4 bar, only with one eighth note missing. Now, you think on the surface of it, my, my fellow music nerds, that's okay, it's not that big of a deal. It's an eighth note. The choreography all of a sudden loses a half step. The orchestration all of a sudden loses a half beat. And you have to make it sound perfect. And it's the man in chair who ultimately fixes the skip, right? So you also have to be watching for when they get back to the record player to set it back on track, right? Yes, it's completely a visual cue. 
matter of fact, the first time I did this show and my man in chair, wonderful actor, one just warm, fuzzy, professional at all times. That was his one moment where he liked to mess with my head. This was at a smaller theater, so the orchestra was actually backstage. I'm watching everything on a monitor, and he would start running to because the way the man in the chair fixes it is he walks over and he slaps his Victrola. And that's what gets us out of the skip and gets in. And he'd walk over and all of a sudden he'd kind of just look at it and, and just, just just kind of peer at it and kind of shake his head. And, and so every night, the amount of times we had to repeat that 7-8 bar was different. God bless him, he never left me in a lurch. But it's a terrifying yet hilarious moment in that show. Because it's like, is he going to hit it? now do we go do we not go it's every it's it's every music director's nightmare but it's also incredibly funny and i think that is a perfect way to sum up the drowsy chaperone incredibly funny so if you haven't heard the drowsy chaperone I cannot recommend you listen to it enough, but I have to give one little warning. When you listen to the record and you listen to the recording, it starts with an overture that is not actually true to the way the show is presented because the overture is played once the show has started. So it's a little bit different from the live performance if you're just listening to it, but it's still worth checking out. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.